This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Erica Dowen is the founder and CEO of Cotential. She attended the Wharton School, where she was my student quite some years ago, as well as MIT and Harvard University. She was named by Thinkers 50 as the Oprah of Management Ideas. Yes, folks, she's that good. Erica co-authored Get Big Things Done, The Power of Connectional Intelligence, which was a bestseller. And in this episode, we talk about the great insights in that very practical, relevant book, which is about a different way of working, powered by informal networks and courageous conversations. So now, get set to listen and learn about how to make things happen by bringing people together closer in ways that are both fruitful and fun. It's Erica Dowen. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much again, Stu. It's such a pleasure to be here and and as you mentioned, I was once a student at the Wharton School of Total Leadership, and I, uh, I think it's just it's a full full circle of being here today to talk a little bit about my total leadership journey and how I think about connection and how it relates to work and life. Um, it's just a pleasure and an honor. Well, so tell us a bit about Cotential, your your organization, and the kind of work that you do. Absolutely. So. You know, I uh, have spent the last five years while at Harvard University looking at millennials and how they look at and think about work and life. And we've seen many articles and conversations um, about millennials and, and, and how they frame, how they think about work and life. And one of the things that I've lear- I learned uh, very early on in, in a lot of my research is that much of the conversation about what millennials want is actually quite backwards. Because Backwards? Often, yes. Because what's often framed is that millennials want free perks or special gyms and things like that. But what they really want is to be engaged, to be tied to issues that matter, and to be connected to all the different tools and resources that are available to them. And as we know, you know, we're living in a time today where connection is not just digital. We're connected across uh, countries, across communities. Um, across logistics and transport in radically different ways. And so what Cotential does and what my work is really focused on is the question of how do we use connection, not just for entertainment or for social media marketing or for mob behavior, but how do we use connection to all of the things that are Did you say mob behavior just now? Yes, yes. What what do you mean by that? Are you incenting... You know, riots and mobs in the cities of, I, of, of America? Wait, what's mob behavior? Sure, great question. So mob behavior, one great example of, of that is um, 
is quote unquote rumors that are spread. Um, one of the rumors that was spread um, three days ago all over Facebook was that the Malaysian the airline was caught um, and found, and there was this story that, that thousands of people on Facebook spread spread that was actually not true. So that 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 was the example I wanted to use around a behavior that spreads that isn't exactly true. Um, but what I'm what I'm really focused on is how do we think about using all of the connections available to us to get work done in better, faster, faster, more effective ways and be able to live our life, lives more fully alive as well. So, you know, most people today think of connection as overwhelming. Um, we're overwhelmed with the tools available to us. But I actually, in my work, have seen amazing stories about how people are are putting all of their connection tools to work in service of getting their work done faster and better, um, but also being able to be connected to people that matter to them most, um, to be fully um, involved in their communities in ways that weren't possible before. So connection tools, by that you mean more than technology? Do you you also include connection tools, including good old face-to-face? Absolutely. So when, is, I, when I mean connection, I mean human connection. I mean the ability to see with multiple perspectives, to have courageous conversations, not just in my community or in my church or in my neighborhood, but with thousands online. What's um, a courageous conversation? <clears throat> so we've seen many of them in the last um, in the last week, but one um, example of a courageous conversation um, that I I often talk about is the story of Bettina Siegel and the Pink Slime campaign. Have you heard this story? I can tell it no. very briefly. So uh, three years ago, um, a food blogger and mother of two in Houston, a woman named Bettina Siegel, um, who was very fas- passionate about food issues, um, studied um, was studying be- the beef industry, and she had followed things like Jamie Oliver's TED Talks and had a had a blog where she talked about food issues. And one of the things that she discovered is that there was a specific type of beef that um, was titled lean, finely textured beef that um, is basically you know the the nutritional quality of pet food, but was in seventy percent of USDA public school lunches. I see. Yes, I did hear about this. So how is this an example of a courageous conversation? And then we'll come back to how people use different tools for connecting and having such conversations. Sure. So when Bettina first discovered this, she was outraged and she wrote about this on her blog. And her blog was read by everyone from mommy bloggers to public school officials to health professionals. And an amazing resonance began online um, because she was really frustrated. She felt um, like these were children, and they had no access to really um, to really understand the types of food that was being delivered in 70% of public schools in the United States. And then she created a Change.org campaign um, online, and this petition um, in two days. So Change.org, let's just clarify for our listeners, is, is a site where you can do what exactly? Change.org is a site where you can create online petitions and mobilize your network online to sign the petition in, in an effort to mobilize enough signatures to really press a, an organization or a government to act. And anybody can do this? Anybody can do this. All right. And so Bettina, having the courage so, to mount such a campaign, use change.org, then what happened? 
within four days, there were 200,000 signatures. By the ninth day of this petition, many things happened. Diane Sawyer ran an ABC News piece about the Pink Slime campaign and how it had gone viral. Um, Wendy's took out ads letting their customers know that they had never had Pink Slime in their burgers. Safeway, Kroger, Food Line, all leading grocery store chains, chains pulled out of having Pink Slime in their stores. And on the 10th day, the USDA came out with a ruling that public schools would now have the option to remove Pink Slime. Governors, congressmen were were forced to engage in a courageous conversation that Bettina Siegel, sitting in Houston, began just 10 days before. And yes, this is a story of virality. This is a story of uh, a contagious conversation. But the fact that Bettina Siegel was able to connect on an issue that she cared about, she had the curiosity to dig into, the courage to understand the tools to combine and engage in mobilized networks that actually changed a, a government ruling. So, so the tools then, here in this case were what exactly, aside from change.org? Sure. So the tools were, there's, there were a couple steps to it. The, the tools were two things. There were the technology tools like change.org, like Facebook and Twitter, which were used to mobilize her campaign. But I think much more than that was the, the understanding by Bettina herself, I think this is a human skill, of how to harness networks in service of what we really want to achieve in our work and our lives. And what she did is she she actually, over two years before that time period, she had built a community of people on her blog, which is called The Lunch Tray. And this community was of people who cared about food issues. So she had people all across the map connected already. And so when... And that came out, if I can just jump in here for a second to underscore what I think is so important about what you're saying, that came out of her curiosity, as you mentioned, and her courage to raise these questions. So, So her interest stemmed from some aspect of her history, something she was passionate about. And she somehow brought that to other people and helped to engage them in, a, in an issue that was good for her and good for, for these other people who, who felt similarly. Absolutely. And what I think is so important as well is that she connected people across all different silos. So the moms were advocating with the public health professionals, with school teachers, with, um, with all different types of groups. And, and I think that that, what connection is allowing us to do in our work and lives is connect with people that we never would have imagined and to create breakthroughs that we never would have imagined. And I think this radically impacts how we can think about work and life and what we're capable of. It, you know, I call it, we're, we're not, it's not just about unleashing human potential now, it's unleashing human potential, which is this connective potential we have and that it is a change maker, not just for business, but for our lives as well. So tell us more about the kind of work that uh, that potential does. Sure, absolutely. I'll frame it in a, a short story for you, Sue. Um, a few years ago, a leading um, New York-based law firm noticed something peculiar happening. The CFO noticed that the millennial associates at the firm were billing less hours. And this was quite peculiar because, one, 
they were giving the millennial associates more work, not less work. And two, as we all know, law firms bill by the hour. So it was actually a concern. And when the, the senior leadership team really started to dig into this, they learned and discovered that a group of about 50 to 60 associates that had all come in together um, as an incoming class had created their own Twitter chat-like tool to help each other solve cases faster. Questions like, how do I, um, where can I find this legal citation? Or does anyone know what law school case we did? I'm working on a similar case right now. And it became a rapidly productive community that senior leaders had no idea about and that was actually changing the bottom line. So what ended up happening is typically senior leaders would see this as a concern. But what they ended up doing is learning. Because it was somehow beyond the standard way of operating? It was one, beyond the standard way of operating. But secondly, it was causing billing hours to go down. And as we know, the law firm, in the, the industry is structured as, as making money through billing hours. And the other piece that was interesting is that these millennial associates get promoted through billing hours. Right. So they were choosing to work faster in service of getting the work done, uh, not in service of the incentive structure of their industry. So what ended up happening is the law firm decided to actually learn from these productivity enhancements. They are now hiring less people because they're understanding from these informal networks how to actually get work done faster. They've created a Twitter at work program teaching leaders at all level, lawyers at all levels how to use these tools to work faster. And now they're really challenged and created a task team to think differently about how their performance metrics need to be changed to meet the new technologies and the new faster ways of doing work. So, and wait, go ahead. The way that potential fits in into the story is that what we do is we help organizations identify these untapped informal networks, just like this law firm millennial group. And then we help them identify how do you harness this informal network to become a source of value for your organization? And then beyond that, how do you turn this informal network into a systemic source of value across the organization? Especially given that we're living in a world of hyperconnection, we can connect faster. And that's leading to immense breakthroughs, um, whether it's solving a business unit problem through a crowd or network, um, or connecting customers in a way that gives insights to an organization um, to, to solve a problem in minutes rather than months. So is, is what you do to kind of go on an anthropological search for innovation inside the organization already, or do you introduce ideas for uh, tapping informal networks uh, you know, ideas that haven't yet been tried, or or is it some combination? How, how is it so that you go about helping? Yeah, so it's a combination of both. But what I truly believe, I think that there are many organizations that uh, try to develop ideas on the outside and tell companies to implement them, and then they never get executed. And what I believe is actually all of the ideas are inside the people in the organization, but they're often not activated in, in networks to really be able to 
generate and test those ideas fast enough to get executed. So a few years ago um, at Frito-Lay, Frito-Lay has diversity groups like a Latino group and an Asian group. And a few years ago, uh, the Latino group, when recombined for employee engagement reasons, said to themselves, why don't we have a Doritos guacamole chip? It would do so well for the Latino customer segment. And they came up with this idea because they had already been recombined in this Latino network. They tested it. When you say recombined, you mean? They, they already had built a network together because they were already seeing each other on a consistent basis because of the Latino employee resource group. Got it. And so because they were connected because of the Latino employee resource group, they came up with this idea and they pitched it to product innovation. And it ended up being a $100 million product. And, wow, then, and that wouldn't have happened had they stayed within their normal job functions and, and not been able to communicate with, with each other in this informal net, network setup. Exactly. What else have you discovered about how to activate the power of informal networks and shared passions among people in, in different kinds of organizational settings? Yes, absolutely. So one of the major things that I've discovered is that our greatest sources of help are really where we least expect it to. Um, one example of this in a um, a more research academic setting was uh, a few years ago, Harvard Medical School decided that they wanted to launch a new initiative around studying type 2 diabetes. And they had done a lot of research in the past, but they decided to experiment with crowdsourcing and asking the crowd online, anyone really, what types of research questions Harvard Medical School should be asking about type 2 diabetes. Hmm. And they had a very, you know, interest, you know, typically academic institutions aren't asking the crowd what questions they should be researching. But what ended up happening is they had, you know, the typical standard of many, many ideas that had already been studied, but then a segment of really new, diverse ideas and, and lenses on question, research questions. And when they looked at the specific sample, they saw that the majority of the greatest insights in the new questions did not come from the typical leading scientists that they would usually ask. They came from people that had a friend or relative that had diabetes. And so what ended up People who really knew the issue and had lived with it and seen it in detail. In their daily lives um, and had thought about it. And so... What ended up happening is then Harvard Medical School said, okay, let's not stop here. And they actually invited a group of some of these these people that were, you know, had a friend or a relative that had type 2 diabetes to join in on these teams and created crowdsourced research teams. And so that's just an example where we are, we live in this world where we can crowdsource amazing ideas from, from scanning and sifting through the internet. But but the power of connectional intelligence doesn't stop there. The real power of the crowd is the ability to scan and sift ideas, right? So that's the same to, power. To scan and what? Sorry? And sift through ideas. Sift. Got it. Yes. And so inside a company, we could sift through the informal networks and what's happening inside our community or our neighborhood um, or our school. We could do that as well. But really, the the human skill is the ability to say, okay, from all of these ideas that exist, how might we bring together the right people 
with a diverse set of weak ties to many disparate things to actually solve the problem at hand. And so if we bring this into the work and life setting, oftentimes there's a colleague that's three cubicles away that might be able to radically help solve a, a life issue, right? But, but the connection hasn't been made. And so, you know, for those listening, what I'd really like to urge us all to think about is how might we broaden all the tools and think about how we solve problems through all of the different tools available to us and how we can create different crowds for the different types of work and life challenges that we face. So that's what we mean by really activating the power of informal networks to, to use the people around you to, to help you. Uh, yes. But you've got to have that courage we were talking about in the last segment to speak yes. about what it is that you are passionate about and what it is that you need help with. Right. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and where right. do people find that courage? Because many people, of course, are, are afraid or you know inhibited about expressing their need for help. So what do we do to encourage people to come forth with ideas for innovation or, or needs for help that help to spark uh, new ways of solving problems? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it depends on the circumstance. I think for business leaders and senior organizational leaders, what I urge them to do is to really design initiatives. So not just the one-off programs, but really a cultural initiative that gets people to be courageous, that inspires them to be courageous. One of the things that... PwC did is they created this, um, they have, you know, 180,000 employees across the world, and they created this American Idol-esque competition where any team of five could come together across the company and come up with an idea for a, a new business opportunity for PwC, and there was a prize, uh, you know, and, and all of that, and there were 3,000 submissions and five winners, and it was a great contest. There are lots of contests. Well, the most interesting thing that happened out of that initiative is that the courage of people across different levels shifted in the organization. Because once they started talking about new ideas with this one team, they had the courage to begin to talk about the idea with their boss or uh, with another professional. So but from, a, from an organization setting is to design for it. But the other aspect to it, and like we saw with the millennial peer group, is to create cohorts of different types of crowds to help you gain the courage and the, solve the problems that matter. Because what, what we all know is that we can, can be connected with people that have similar challenges. And I think that also inspires courage in all of us. So seeing people around you uh, who have similar worldviews, similar um, interests, uh, being encouraged to share their ideas for change helps you to come forward yourself. How is yeah. this different from the old suggestion box uh, that they had in the previous century where employees were asked to come forward with their ideas for change? So those suggestion boxes still exist, and they exist most of the times on, online. Um, and I think the majority of the much of that box has not worked in in large organizations in today's world because people are using all the different many different tools. So this is you know this is not about crowdsourcing, 
and and getting bits and pieces of opinions or serving for suggestions. What this is really about is it's it's really this ability to create informal grassroots movements inside your community, your business, your neighborhood, whatever it might be, uh, your you know your working moms group, um, to to come up with ideas together and test and, and test them together. And it, it's really a model that's built not just around being connected, but trusting each other um, over time in a way that you can connect and plug in and out in a much more rapid way than sending something into a suggestion box and never hearing about it, never engaging just like, um, you know, the relatives of uh, a patient that had diabetes joining in on a crowdsourced team at Harvard University. So it's it's that profound shift that's really changing from the sort of one-way um, input to this two-way continuous dialogue. Really multi-way, because you've got, yes. once, you, once you bring people together to talk about their ideas for change, then they, of course, uh, spark uh, insight and innovation in the thinking of the people around them, which is Absolutely. what makes this all so very different from the... Uh, much more static one-way communication of the old suggestion box. Uh, so, so how do you ignite the fire? You know, once once you've got the spark, how do you really fan it to, so that so that the flame grows? You talked about designing for change. What does that mean exactly? Like, how do you do that as a as an executive in a company? Sure, absolutely. So the way that I think about this question is, it's really you're designing to activate a network of people. So break and, that down for us. What what does that look like? Sure. So the the first thing that I I ask inside the company uh, around that question is, who are the most trusted, incredible peop- influencers in the organization? So uh, I don't look for the senior level leaders to to actually know that question. Um, and I don't look at them as the influencers in, in the way that we might think about the word influence. I, I look for the people that are the, are, when I, when I do a survey in an organization, um, I ask people who, who in the organization is the spirit guru or the boundary breaker. The spirit guru? Define that term for us, please. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what do you mean by that? Somebody who has a positive spirit and is somebody you're motivated to be around. Huh. So motivation. So you you try to actually identify the people who are seen that way by others in the organization as spirit yes. gurus? Yes. Yes. Cool. That's what All I'm right. Like. So who are the other influencers that you try to target or somehow identify? Mm-hmm. Another one is trust. So who is somebody that I really trust and I think is credible? And sometimes it's, um, that we've found um, administrative assistance to be some of the most trustworthy people inside organizations that were never tapped on a big project. Um, another lens is friendship. So friendship is, is a lens that we look at. Um, a fourth lens is respect. So who do I really respect? Who inspires me? And sometimes it's, you know, um, a middle manager who um, has gone through, you know, really hard challenges and, and is open and willing and w- whatever it might be. So so you do a kind of social mapping or, or a, yeah. you do a, an analysis of who is where in the informal network, 
who are the thought leaders, who are the people that others look to for support, for inspiration. You, you, you target those people instead of going through the standard hierarchy. Is that it? Exactly. So instead of looking at the typical professional skill set or the organizational chart, I always say there's the organizational chart of the company, and then there's the chart of where work really gets done. Okay, so and then I what have, happens? So you've got the influencers identified. What's the next step? The next step is to in, in design to work with the influencers, engage the influencers in a way to allow them to generate ideas. So like the Latino group, when recombined, came up with, you know, we could really help product innovation, and we're not helping them now with targeting the Latino segment. We design and work with influencers to either generate an idea for the organization or say, you know, these are some of the big challenges that the organization is facing. How might you think about this, given all of the reach and and relationships that you see and you hold in the organization? How does this influence method uh, or this, this strategy for change affect the lives of people outside of work or how can it be used or how has it been used to create you know, a greater sense of harmony among the different parts of life? So it's, it's, an, it's an, such an important question and it's a big part of the work that I'm doing and thinking about right now. The key is actually that it plays a major role. Um, I, you know, I think we're still on the frontier with, and Stu, you might have some examples of this, um, of where influencer networks have brought in their communities. I've seen a lot of this work been done in academic institutions and nonprofits, like in the example where friends and relatives of, um, of patients have come together. Uh, but I, I, truly believe that these what influencer networks are able to do is reach a much larger pool um, and we're still it's still a frontier though um, and the way that it's emerging is different in different organizations so uh, I can't give you a perfect example right now but I, I think that there is an amazing um, and important relevance one of the things that um, we've seen with some technology companies where there's a lot of freelance work. One example is Etsy, which you know is um, a very well-known freelance technology product company. Um, one of their largest um, segments of freelancers are suburban mothers in the Midwest who can only work between the hours of 11 and 4. And so they're touching not only, you know, the, the typical millennial techies in urban areas, but they're touching communities, um, engaging in communities in a radically different way. Uh, so what else can people do, uh, or what else is it possible to do in an organization after you've identified the people who have influence, brought them together? Uh, how do you then... Um, fan the flames and, 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 and have the have it grow. So so the best part is given the tools, the connection tools that are available available to all of us, we can move much faster um, than ever before. So one of the examples of this concept inside an organization was um, one company I worked with had a big um, millennial engagement problem. And instead of starting with the, the challenge of, all right, let's just ask the millennials what they want around work and life. Um, what we did is we said, okay, one of the challenges that they, 
say they have is that there are all of these processes and rules that make them feel stuck. So we designed um, a game called Kill a Stupid Rule. And we asked teams of employees in the company to say, if there's any rule or procedure that you want to say stop for some reason, you can't just complain about it. What you have to do is identify the assumption under the rule and then come up with a new way of addressing it. And so, you know, what ended up happening in that engagement was um, there were all of these ideas, one particularly um, from a group of millennials, was the fact that the company um, was not harnessing LinkedIn. Uh, There were rules about engaging in LinkedIn that were not regulatory. They were just sort of shutting off social media as a distractor. But LinkedIn was an amazing tool for business development, for reaching prospects, uh, for gaining new clients, for understanding clients what clients were curious about, and they came up with a whole different initiative around how to use LinkedIn to address problems. And so that's, you know, that was a spontaneous thing because we had really engaged both influencers and then their networks uh, to think about killing stupid rules. So that's an example of, of something that was achieved and how we think about achieving uh, success and fast results in organizations today. So you really have to be um, conscious about, uh, as an organizational leader, about uh, getting people to feel free to come up with ideas for change. It seems like that's a very important uh, part of the the equation is we want to hear from you. Here are means for you to do that and to then um, encourage people to come forward with those ideas not just to complain about what's wrong, but to contribute to generating ideas for for solutions, for change. Absolutely. And to tie it to the business issues that really matter to the organization. I often feel that um, we are are so hyper-connected, but we're not tapping into all the different relationships and networks and groups. And and, And that phrase is not meant to overwhelm, but we can do things very fast. And so the more that we can design and engage and, you know, for each of us listening in, in, in this conversation today to think about how might I use my networks differently to solve a problem or to ask a different question or have a courageous conversation that might actually jumpstart something that could really make a big step change in my organization, in my community, in my school or whatever it might be. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think companies can be doing to promote people in them having better integrated, more harmonious lives, either using informal networks or through other means? I think that one of the the most important things that I see that is often untapped is really engaging people across the uh, the organization by their passions, not just by their genders or their race or their ethnicity or their sexual orientation. We have great you know, the notion of diversity, as you know, and as you talk about, Stu, goes much beyond diversity because we all know that diversity is great for business, but diversity also creates more difference and more dissonance, and that creates more tension. And I think the job of organizations is to create that tension of diversity productive. And so the more that we can create ways to engage people around what they really care about, I think that there's so much potential, or should I say potential, that we can all achieve together in our work and in our lives. 
So as you look to the future, and you probably think about it a lot, Erica, what's your dream for what the world's going to look like, say, 15 years from now? The the image that comes to my mind is it's an interconnected web. Um, I'm imagining this visual of, of it's like a dance. Um, and the reason that I use dance as a metaphor is because um, all of us have the capacity um, at, at every level, from Bettina Siegel to a middle manager in a, in, in, in a corporation, um, to a young millennial at a law firm. And um, my aspiration and, and my hope is that um, in connection, we can address our world's most pressing challenges and that no one is good thinking alone as they are in connection. That's an inspired idea, and I like the idea of uh, us dancing together to make that happen. My guest this hour has been Erica Dawan. Erica, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your expertise and your ideas. Thank you, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erica Dawan and that you're thinking differently now about how you use the tools for connection that are available to you. What do you do to create and maintain and enrich informal networks that allow you to improve your work and your life beyond work at home and in the community? So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. Try using any one of the tools available to you in some new way, but consciously, deliberately, aiming to do so in a way that helps you advance an idea or initiative, a project, something about which you care a lot, and that brings people closer together. What happens when you try that? What do you discover? I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas about people you'd like to hear me speaking with on this podcast, well, just let me know at the same address, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.